Let's open in a quick word of prayer, shall we? Bow with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your word to teach and instruct and to encourage and strengthen. We pray uh, by your spirit, you open its, its meaning to us. Help us to apply what you're saying to our lives today and to our mission with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to start us off uh, thinking about the most evil and prideful dictators of our time, because that's the, that's the way I like to start sermons. So I want you to think in your mind um, of those people. Let me give you a few examples. Think of the, the Vladimir Putins, the Kim Jong-uns, the Bashar al-Assads, right, and countless others all over the world. Think of the pride and the arrogance with which they lead and make decisions. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? You really take some time, think it through. I think what shocks me most uh, when I play this little mental exercise is how in almost every case, uh, how they are so convinced, these people are so convinced that their power and prestige and position is worth the destruction of thousands of innocent lives. It's worth it. It blows me away how they could justify that. Now, with those people in mind, think about this. What would it take to humble a person like that? What would it take uh, Bashar al-Assad, for example? What would it take for him to lay down his arms in Syria, apologize to the world for what he's done and his own people, and pursue reconciliation, right? What would it take for these kinds of people, these who have built their whole life on power and control and irrational, arrogant self-confidence to really change? What would it take? If war and assassination attempts and refugee crises and economic collapses cannot change these people, then what can? And if you can begin to ask that question, then you're ready for the story this morning. What on earth would compel Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is just like the people we've just mentioned, he's just like them, what would compel him to write a letter like this in Daniel chapter 4? And send it out to his entire empire. Because actually in our story this morning, at least some of this story is written by King Nebuchadnezzar. This uh, evil dictator, the villain in our story in Daniel so far, he actually wrote part of the Bible. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, he did. It's a letter to his people describing what God has done in his life. Something changed. Something happened. What was it? If you haven't turned to Daniel 4 yet, do that now. Daniel chapter 4. And while you're doing that, just imagine with me, just put yourself in this story a little bit. Uh, let's say you're a governor of a major city in the, in the uh, empire of Babylon. Uh, you're, in a, you're in a province uh, leading a city, and you, uh, one morning you come to your desk, you're starting your day, and you, you, you're flipping through your mail, and you realize, I got a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar. I should probably open this one first. So you open it, and here's how it begins. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And that's where you say, yeah, right. Um, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's the moment where you'd spit your coffee out all over this letter and say, what in the world happened to this guy? Most high God? What's he talking? The Jewish God? Is he, is he picking favorites? Which is a terrible political move in a, in a pluralist society. Like uh, Nebuchadnezzar 
was leading. And, and, and for Nebuchadnezzar to talk about anyone other than himself is shocking enough. But to talk about the Most High God, what happened to him. Now, we've already seen glimpses of God's work in this man's life throughout the book of Daniel. And to be fair to Nebuchadnezzar, he could have handled it better, but he could have handled it a lot worse, too. Uh, you know, he had a dream early on in the book, and uh, Daniel comes and interprets it for him, and, and Nebuchadnezzar kind of gives a nod to God. Thank you, God, for telling me the meaning. But of course, of course, then he goes out and he makes a golden image and threatens to kill people if they don't bow down to it. So not a total win, but it's, he's moving in the right direction. He's closer. Of course, when God thwarts his plan and saves the three men from the fiery furnace that he built, he again, he kind of tips his cap. God, you're powerful, way to go. But his life doesn't change. His rule doesn't change. His character doesn't change. Not really. And decades pass from the fiery furnace story in, in the last chapter. And Daniel's story is not over yet. We've got several chapters left. But this is our last moment with Nebuchadnezzar. This is his last part of the story. This is it. He's reigned for 43 years in Babylon, from Daniel's teens when he arrived, now into his mid-50s or so. And, and the story that we're about to talk about Daniel for, it seems to be the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It's near the end. And his letter that describes the story uh, continues in, in verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. He's near retirement, basically. There's no one left to conquer. There's no more external threats he needs to keep track of. There's no more internal threats he needs to stamp out. Life is good. It's time to kick back and enjoy the fruit of his life and relax the way any dictators do. I don't know how they do that. But to be, to be fair to Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he has accomplished, and I want you to know this, he has accomplished a lot from a human standpoint. Incredibly successful leader from a human standpoint. Dictator. Leader may be too strong. His kingdom stretched from uh, modern Egypt to western Iran and from modern Syria to Saudi Arabia. Huge kingdom. And not, on, not only did he conquer the known world, he renovated dozens of public works projects, temples, religious sites all over his empire. He fortified the outer wall of his capital, Babylon, uh, which was not only an incredible defensive advantage in the ancient world, uh, it was a status symbol. It's a well-fortified city means you're powerful, powerful enough to protect yourself. Uh, the Greek uh, historian Herodotus, he's writing about 100 years after the wall was built, but still the same walls. Uh, he said the walls were five miles long around the city, which is incredible, and so thick you could turn a four-horse chariot around on top. These are big walls. He built a new palace connected to the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, we don't know exactly what they looked like, but they were amazing. We only have artist renderings now of, of what it possibly could have looked like. Um, the, one, of this, one of the ancient wonders of the world, uh, many ancient writers write about the beauty and the, the majesty of, of Babylon and its hanging gardens. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did that. Supposedly, he designed these uh, and commissioned this project for his queen. She was a median queen. She was from a hilly, forested area, and so he not used to the plains uh, of Babylon, and so he built this in honor of her so she'd feel more like she was at home. He's a romantic guy, apparently. <laughs> and he's, he's crushed it as a dictator. Historians will tell you that, that there are only a few people in history who enjoyed the prosperity and success and security and power that he did. Think about it this way. It, <laughs> if he knows it exists, he owns it. 
If he can see it, it's his. There are not many leaders. There's no leader today you can say that about. Incredible power, wealth beyond imagination, legacy, secure, life is good, but even he can be shaken. And that's what the story is about. His letter continues this way. He says, I had a dream that made me afraid. That sounds familiar. It should. Nebuchadnezzar has a lot of scary dreams. This guy <laughs> needs an Ambien real bad. Uh, but he, this, time, <laughs> this time he has a, a dream of a massive tree. So massive that all the animals and the birds, they find shelter in it. It has fruit enough for everyone. It's described as a beautiful and lush tree for the whole world to see. But the tree in the dream is not what scares the most powerful man in the world. Look at verse 13. He says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher, which is another name for an angel. A holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So he calls in his advisors because he's, he's scared, he's freaking out. And uh, this time, if he goes ahead and tells them what the dream was, and he says, help me interpret it. If you remember last time, he said, you guys tell me what the dream was and interpret it, which was really mean. So again, baby steps for Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's, he's making progress. They say, king, we have no idea what the dream means, which is just classic. Uh, they've never once come through for him. Uh, so, so finally, Nebuchadnezzar calls in Daniel. He calls in his closer. He says, go get Daniel. Go get the Jew and bring him in here. Daniel arrives, he's now in his 40s or his 50s, uh, and you know uh, everybody remembers what he did early on. Nebuchadnezzar remembers, Daniel remembers, uh, that he was the only one who could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream earlier in the book, and Nebuchadnezzar knows there's something special about him. He uh, describes him as one in whom is the spirit of the, of the gods. He, he knows he's got some kind of supernatural connection, and he says, Daniel, I'm glad you're here. I'm, I'm freaking out. Tell me what it means. I, I saw a tree. In the middle of the earth, it was tall, and it just kept growing taller and stronger until it reached the heavens, and everyone everywhere could see it, and it was beautiful and bountiful and food and shade for every person and every beast. But then Daniel, an angel, came and gave this command, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Here's the part I left out earlier. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him, that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. So I'm no dream expert, but this does not sound good if you're Nebuchadnezzar, right? And it's kind of hard to believe he doesn't know what it means. Like, really? It seems pretty obvious, Nebuchadnezzar, that this is about you. It makes you wonder, did the advisors actually know what the dream meant, but they didn't have the guts to tell him the truth? Uh, it also might explain why the king hesitates to bring Daniel in in the first place. He knows he's his best, but he also knows when Daniel interprets a dream, it tends, tends to be a bit, bit of a Debbie Downer. So he thought, oh, maybe it, I can hedge away, but even Daniel is upset by the dream. So much so that Nebuchadnezzar actually has to comfort him. He says, Daniel, it, don't be trouble. It's okay. It's not that bad, right, Daniel? It can't be that bad. And Daniel, who's loyal and loving in a way I can't even fathom, even to this wicked king, who I'm convinced Daniel has spent every day of, of all these years in captivity praying for Nebuchadnezzar. It's the only way to explain his heart to him. 
He says, O king, why can't this dream, if only this dream were about your enemies, but they're not, they're about you. You are the tree. And sooner or later, God is going to cut you down. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to become like an animal. You're going to lose everything until you know that the most high God rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And Daniel tries to help. You look at verse 27. He says, King, with all that in mind, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Okay, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He's saying, repent, Nebuchadnezzar. There's still time. Break off your sins or they will break you. Free the oppressed whom you have oppressed in your kingdom. And perhaps the divine lumberjack of your dream that you're so dreading will give you just a little more time. But once again, this is the pattern of Nebuchadnezzar. Nothing changes. Or if it did, it didn't last very long. Soon he forgets, or he stops caring, or he remembers, who does God think he is? I'm me. <laughs> I'm the most successful, powerful emperor on the planet. What's he possibly going to do to me? And more to the point, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar has now seen God give Daniel incredible wisdom and insight in his dreams. He's seen God in a furnace with three people saving their lives, bringing them out, and he still hasn't changed. So what at this point is a dream really going to do. So for a full year, in verse 30, for 12 months, everything's fine. Nothing happened. Daniel must have been wrong. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, nobody bats a thousand, Daniel. It's okay. You were wrong. And then one evening, with a glass of wine in his hand, is the way I picture it anyway, <laughs> and a cool breeze and a beautiful sunset over Babylon, he's walking out on his balcony, Nebuchadnezzar is. He's looking at his city and his gardens and his power and his wealth and his comfort. Never before has anyone been so successful, and you can feel the camera zooming out. The movie's almost over. The music swells in the background. This is his big closing number. This is, the, right, this is his whole legacy here, and we actually have an audio clip of what it sounded like in this, in this moment, what he said. Yeah, this is it. It's a great singer, Nebuchadnezzar was. Good Just wait for it. Here it comes. Can't you see him? He's holding his glass to himself. Way to go, Nebuchadnezzar. Way to go. That's it, right? This is, his whole, this is it. He's, he's arrived and he says what most of us would never say out loud, but maybe we thought. And he says, is not this great Babylon, which I built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for my glory and my majesty, is it not great? And right there, a new song interrupts, cuts in. You can almost hear it now. You can run on for a long time. Run on Johnny Cash. For a long time. Run on for a long time. Here it is. Right. I can't think of two better songs for Nebuchadnezzar ever. <laughs> or for humanity in general, but we're gonna we're gonna get there in a minute. So he's right, he's in the middle of declaring how awesome he is, and you can hear God laugh. 
And then you can hear, God says, I warned you, I told you, I gave you every opportunity. So God cuts in, he says, I'm going to stop you right there, Nebuchadnezzar, this kingdom of yours that you're so proud of, it's departed from you today. And all those terrible things you dreamed about a year ago, they're going to happen to you now. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to be like an animal. You're going to have long, fierce hair, talons, grazed like an ox in the field. You're going to live in the wild like the beast you've become. And until you know the most high rules, the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. So here's our first lesson from the story. It's, it's pretty straightforward. You probably have already picked up on it, but here it is. Pride deceives and dehumanizes and destroys. Now, on the one hand, before we get to that, this is a, this is a story of tremendous hope for, for God's oppressed people. Right? There's no one so powerful, so corrupt, so manipulative that God cannot get to them. That's one lesson of this story. He's still in control despite all of Nebuchadnezzar's accomplishments and accolades and power. That's good news for God's oppressed people. God's power trumps human pride every time. Check. And it's easy with that in mind to look at this story and say, good riddance, Nebuchadnezzar, see you later, buddy, and walk away. But that is a prideful way to look at this story. Because only pride would look at this story and this example and say, I'm so glad I'm nothing like him. Are you? Are you sure? See, the real danger of pride, if you think about it, thinking too much about yourself, is that the prouder you are, the less you know it. You ever wonder why these dictatorial maniacs seem to be operating on a plane of reality unlike everybody else. You're just like, what are they thinking or saying or doing? It's because they can't see it anymore. They don't see the pride. They don't see the arrogance. They say, no, this is just true. This is just right. Are you sure you can see yours? That's a scary question. The prouder you are, the less you can see. So much so that I might blame God for everything wrong in my life and take credit for everything good right? Because I'm that awesome and God is that unfair. He's that unjust. You've never done that before, right? Tim Keller, I love the way he puts this. He calls it cosmic plagiarism, taking credit for God's work in your life. And you've probably all been victims probably of plagiarism at one point in our life and it's infuriating, right? It's like, I, I, I did that. I, you're taking credit for something I did and that's what we do to God. Pride looks around and says, you know, look at my house. I've, I did this. Look at my job. I've accomplished this. Look at my family. I have the best genes. You know, my kids are the best. What if I'd been born in a different century? What if a different country? What if I hadn't been born to those parents or given those opportunities? What if my skin color was different or I spoke a different language or I grew up worshiping a different God altogether? You begin to ask those questions of your life and you realize how little control you have over those things. Yet pride looks at all of it and it says, I did, I did it my way. I did it. I get the credit. Yeah, maybe God helped a little bit, but it was mostly me. Now here's where I see this crop up the most in my own life. It's in my relationships. Pride affects our relationships. If you really pay attention, I cannot tell you how many marriages I've seen struggle, not because of sexual morality or lying or cheating, but pride. Pride. You've got to be right. You can't lose the fight. You've, you've got to win, right? Apologizing, acknowledging your role in what's happening in the problem is just out of the question. 
See, your kingdom and mine might be smaller than Nebuchadnezzar's, much smaller. But the same pride can blind you to God's warning in this story, the same as him. Pride deceives, and it's also dehumanizing. You cannot miss the irony of this story, right? Nebuchadnezzar, his whole life, has worked so hard to become like God. In an effort to do that, he's become less than a man. Becomes an animal. When we put ourselves where only God belongs, in control, this happens to us too. How, how else do you explain the brutality of prideful people who are given opportunity and power and military control? What do they do? We often look at their example, right? These people we mentioned earlier, and we say, what, those, they're, they're acting like animals. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar has become. God is simply showing him on the outside what was already true on the inside. And he's showing us too, humble yourself is the warning here. To know your place before God is the best place to be. Humble yourself now because this warning only gets worse before it gets better. Look at verse 33. Immediately, Nebuchadnezzar says, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Everything God said would happen, happens. And for seven periods of time, is that weeks or months or years we don't know? I'm guessing the latter, whatever it was, it was just long enough. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. He humiliates him. Everything is gone. His, even his personal dignity and this divine lumberjack of his dreams takes out his freshly sharpened axe and just starts chopping at this guy's life. And if God can do that with Nebuchadnezzar's pride, what will he do with mine? And if you're not asking that question in the midst of this story, be careful. Look around. The axe may be at the foot of the tree. You can run for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. We're supposed to be a little scared at this point in the story of God's power. That's appropriate, but it's not, I don't think, the main point of the story, because mostly I think we should be in awe of God's great mercy. It's severe, to be sure, it's, but it's unbelievable, too. God is severe but merciful. That's the second thing we learn. God is severe, but he's so merciful. And as bad as this is for Nebuchadnezzar, and it's, it's bad, this is bad, it should have been so much worse. God had every right in this moment to just take Nebuchadnezzar out. Boom, zap, done, you're, you're over. But he doesn't do that. In fact, God acts more like a surgeon performing surgery than an executioner right? Uh, enacting judgment. He's cutting deep, and it's hard, and it's painful to watch, but he is trying to save this man's life from himself. That's what he's doing. From his suicidal, self-deceived pride. God is severe sometimes, but it's always mercy. There's probably something in your life right now you can think of that feels severe to you. And I'm not saying that every hard thing or every humiliating moment is God's axe at the trunk of your life. It's not. We live in a broken world. We already blame God too much for all the hardships we've created for ourselves uh, already. But have you ever, maybe put it a different way, have you ever been able to look at your weaknesses? Have you ever been able to, to ask for help when you knew you couldn't do something? Have you ever been able to admit a character flaw and in the moment given thanks for it? You ever done that? You know, that's what Paul's doing when he says, I, I prayed to God three times that he would take my weakness from me. And God said, no, because my grace is sufficient for you. 
And Paul says, therefore, I boast in my weakness because in it God's power is made manifest. Paul knows this is a gift. This is not an... Your flaws and weaknesses, your lack of ability to do everything perfectly is a gift from a loving father. It's a reminder that you are not that special and that's okay. God's okay with that. If God won't give up on a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, and his problems, how much more will he pursue you? And praise God, we have the warning that Nebuchadnezzar got too. We, we have this story. We know what God's looking for. Three times in the story, this refrain is repeated, that all of this mess happens to Nebuchadnezzar until he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And he learned it somehow. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar writes in verse 34. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Isn't it interesting uh, that acknowledging God in heaven is, is the return of reason, right? You see that theme all over the Bible. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You see it here. My reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Big picture here. He acknowledges someone bigger than himself for the first time. There's someone bigger than me. And more than that, Nebuchadnezzar delights in it. He delights in someone bigger than himself. You see, it's one thing for Nebuchadnezzar to say, God is powerful, he beat me, he wins, but I still hate his guts. He could have said that, but he doesn't. The real transformation in his life is not that he acknowledges God, but that he praises and blesses him. God is powerful, yes, but he's good. That's the change. And that's how our healing begins too. Delight in someone bigger than you. The answer to our pride is not thinking less of ourselves, as C.S. Lewis puts it, but thinking of ourselves less. And the way to do that is to think about someone else more. Delight in someone bigger than you. Mostly, I think that means giving thanks to someone bigger. Give thanks. Look at all the good things in your life and acknowledge that they're all there because of him. Doesn't mean you sh it doesn't mean your responsibility and planning and hard work don't matter. I'm not saying that. But even your ability to do those things comes from him. Can you give thanks to him that he's bigger than you and he gives you good things? But it also means obedience. It means obedience to someone bigger than you. And Daniel tries to convince Nebuchadnezzar of this lesson in, in verse 27. He says, stop sinning, practice righteousness, show mercy, let God be the boss of your life king, for goodness sake, because he'll do a better job than you anyway. And it means trusting someone bigger, even in his severe mercy. And we daily remind ourselves that he is in control, not us. He alone keeps us safe, not us. He defines what is our good, not us. Even in the hard things, God is sovereign and he is gracious and he is good. Can you delight in him? Now, it's mind-boggling to me that this all turns out okay for Nebuchadnezzar. That's how the story ends. He, he gets his reason back. He gets his kingdom back. But more importantly, his life is saved. 
It's saved from himself. And you can tell he's really transformed. He's really changed because this letter he sends out is the proof. He sends this out to his entire empire saying, this is how God humbled me. Thank God for it. Our own elected officials today would never send out a letter like this. God's severe mercy, it leads to repentance. And I believe conversion for Nebuchadnezzar. This letter is a testimony to the world. And it's a part of this man's legacy for thousands of years. The only reason you know who Nebuchadnezzar is is he gets humbled by God in Daniel chapter 4. That's why you know his name. And he's been so humbled, he tells the whole empire his story. It's amazing. And I think he comes to know the Lord. I think he's a brother with Daniel now. We, we might just get to meet him someday. And Nebuchadnezzar is one of those guys you want to meet in heaven. You don't want to meet him on earth. So that's a good thing. But we might get to meet him someday. And if that's true, if that's true, and we asked him, was it worth it? Everything you went through for those seven months, seven years, the humiliation, the confusion, the pain, the agony of that, was it worth it? He would say, yes, it was. <clears throat> and it reminds me of uh, the Narnia series. You guys ever read that? C.S. Lewis, children's book. Children's books are always the most profound, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed that, but uh, one of them in particular, it's called The Horse and His Boy in, in the Narnia series. And uh, Aslan, who's the great lion of all the books, and he represents uh, uh, Christ. He's the Christ figure. And in the, in the climactic moments of, of the horse and this boy, Aslan, the, the lion, this great, huge lion, and uh, Huynh, the horse, who's one of the main characters they meet for the first time in the book. And you have to imagine, right, in the book, what it would be like to be a horse meeting a lion. <laughs> uh, for our teaching team this week, we googled uh, horses and lions. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. Um, it would be terrifying to be the horse in this story. Uh, it would be sort of like Nebuchadnezzar meeting God for the first time. But I love what happens. Here's what Lewis says. She says he says, Then when the horse, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion, please, she said, you are so beautiful. You can, you can eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. See, that is the message of Nebuchadnezzar. Sure, we see how disastrous pride is. We see how severe God's mercy can be. We see the importance of delighting in, in the true king now. But at the end of the day, if you only take one thing with you today from this story in Daniel chapter 4, this is it. This is what Nebuchadnezzar's legacy is. This is thousands of years reaching forward to our time this is what I think this story is telling us. It is better to be humbled by God than exalted by anyone else. Better to be humbled by him than exalted by anyone else. Better to be devoured by him. Let him humble you. Let him devour you if necessary. Because there's no other king who humbled himself for our sake the way he did. The one who had every right to take pride in himself and his accomplishments and his work, the creator of the universe, humbled himself. The same God who confronted Nebuchadnezzar thousands of years ago also became a man and entered our brokenness and our world. And he was cut down on a tree so that in due time, he might lift us up. 
And because of this Jesus, because of this King, I'd rather be humbled by him than exalted, applauded by anybody else. Let's pray to him now. Father, I know there are pains in this room, there are hardships in this room, things you're using to humble us. God, you're entering into our lives and you're teaching us. You're intervening to save us from ourselves. Help us to see where you're doing that and to work with you and not against you. And God, help us in those moments to remember that at our, our, at our weakest and our lowest, at our most prideful moment in humanity, you intervened, not just in our lives, but in, in, the, in the life of the universe and your son, Jesus. You sent him and he died for us. He was crushed for us so that we wouldn't have to be. God, thank you for him. We pray in his name.